So last week's message did not get recorded, so I'm just going to preach that one again. What are y'all laughing about? Amelia wouldn't have even known if I didn't tell her. She doesn't even pay attention. Because you started it. You gave me garbage the first time we met. You started it. I'm just kidding, Amelia. I love you. I'm also kidding about preaching last week's sermon. Uh, We're going to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 19 through 23 tonight. Pastor Mitch is not here, so of course I'm going to preach a sermon about five verses. (laughs) He'll never believe it if you tell him. Um, So we're going to look at a, a short section of Scripture tonight, but there's a lot going on. And it is going to kind of tie the last couple weeks together. So we've been talking over the last few weeks about the idea of surrendering your rights. So in chapter 7, we talked about the right to be married, the right to be unmarried, and what you should or should not pursue. Should you pursue divorce? Should you not pursue divorce? And Paul essentially kind of makes the case that says, It is better for the sake of the gospel if you remain unmarried. So if you can do it, you should do that. And then we get into chapter 8, and he starts to talk about food sacrifice to idols. And there was a dispute among believers at that time, specifically, usually, among the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. And even some of the Gentile believers were kind of wrapped up in that. And basically what was going on is that in those communities, and in Corinth in particular, Typically, if you got meat, you got meat from the temple. That was basically, you know, because they were constantly sacrificing animals. And so that was the place to get cheap steaks, basically. And so there were those who had been previously involved in idol worship that it it was an issue with their consciences, that they could not eat that meat. And there were some believers who could and some believers who couldn't, and they were fighting about that. And Paul basically said, look, you can eat the meat. Because idols aren't real. But it should be more important to you that you don't cause your brother or sister to stumble in their walk with Christ. And so you should elevate their needs above your wants. Right? And so we talked about that in chapter 8. Last week in chapter 9, we talked specifically about Paul surrendering his rights. And we talked about how. How, how ministers, preachers have the right to be compensated for what they're doing. We talked about why that is, and I also made sure that I stressed that I wasn't lobbying for a pay raise or anything like that because Paul was making the point that he said, look, if I am entitled to these things and I willingly give them up, I do that because I want you to see from my example the importance of winning people to faith in Christ through the gospel. I do this, I surrender my right to be compensated specifically so that there is not a hindrance there. Okay, and so we get into um, verse 19 tonight. And, and as we look at this passage, I want you to remember that Paul has hammered over and over again that all of this is for the sake of the gospel. All of this is because of the gospel of Jesus Christ being the most significant thing 
in all of creation. And so that's the mentality that Paul has, and that's the mentality that he's trying to convey to the Corinthians and by extension to us. So let's look together. First Corinthians chapter nine, starting in verse 19, it says this, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. And so... The first thing we see here, Paul is kind of linking this passage back to what he talked about last, what we talked about last week. So he says, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. So remember what we talked about, how Paul did not take compensation from the Corinthians. So in that context, Paul is making the point here to say that he is not beholden to them. He does not work for the Corinthians. He is not employed by them. They are not his boss. Okay? So some of you might be aware of this. Some of you might not. But under the way that churches are typically structured, the congregation is the ministry staff's boss. I don't see it that way. I love all of you. You're not my boss. I love Pastor Mitch. He's not my boss. I love my wife. She's not my boss. Jesus Christ is my boss. And my only aim is to teach and to preach and to live my life in a way that accords with what he has commanded me to do. And so if you were to come to me and say, well, you know, Pastor Corey, I think you talk too much about sin and I think you ought to stop. I'll say, well, thank you for sharing your thoughts with me. I'm going to keep right on preaching about sin because Jesus Christ in his word commands us to preach the full counsel of God. And so I'm going to keep preaching about sin because I am not beholden to you. I am beholden to Christ alone. And so Paul is saying, I am free from all of you. None of you, no person on earth is Paul's boss. Paul stands before provincial governors. He stands before the emperor of Rome at one point. And what does Paul do? He proclaims the gospel. He doesn't bow the knee and kiss the ring. He proclaims that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. Everywhere he goes to everyone he meets because he is free from all. What are they going to do? Kill him? Then he gets to go be with Jesus, to live as Christ and to die as gain. So he's free from all. But he says, I have made myself a servant to all. Notice the switch there. He is not a servant to anyone except for Christ. But he says, I have made myself a servant to all. 
So Paul has taken on this attitude, this posture of, I am going to serve other people. And it's not just other believers. It's not just other people who look like him or think like him or believe like him. He says that he is a servant to all. His desire is to serve every person so that he has the opportunity to share the gospel with him. What does he say? I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Now bear in mind, Paul does not win anyone. Paul does not save anyone, just like we don't save anyone. Pastor Mitch talked this morning about going out and sharing the gospel with one person per week for the whole year, and we can share the gospel with almost everybody in Kern County in a year. And you know what? We might do that. And we might share the gospel 860 whatever thousand times, and not a single person might come to know, might come to know Christ. We have zero control over that. We, we just don't. But we are called to be faithful Paul doesn't say, I've become a servant of all so that I will win them over. He says, so that I might. He's looking for opportunity. And when you operate that way, we're going to talk about this a little bit later, but when you operate that way, it helps you to resist the temptation to kind of massage the gospel a little bit so that people might like it better. Okay, when you don't when you don't operate under the understanding that you are the one trying to save them, trying to entice them into the kingdom. You're less tempted to pretty up the gospel, as it were. And so Paul's aim is that he might win more of them. And so he goes on in verse 20, he says to the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews to those under the law. I became as one under the law, though not myself, not not my, not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law to those outside the law. I became as one outside the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law to the weak. I became weak that I might win the weak. So he gives some kind of classifications here. And I don't want you to think that this is an exhaustive list, but I want you to understand what Paul is trying to communicate here. Okay. Paul is saying for me to go to them, and that's what he is doing. He is going to them. He is going to them. He is at least partially embracing and immersing himself into their culture. He is not bringing his culture to them. Remember what the Judaizers do? The Judaizers want to bring their culture to the Gentiles so that they might become Christians. And Paul says, that's, that's not it. That's not what's supposed to happen here. Paul goes to them. So one of the things that, that Pastor Mitch shared with me when he, he talked this morning about his trip to Ukraine, one of the things he shared with me when he came back, and this is very common, this happens all over the world, when they went to the Ukraine... They, had, they did praise music there, but they did not do drums. No drums. Because decades ago, 
when Southern Baptist missionaries went into Ukraine and preached the gospel and people were converted, those Southern Baptist missionaries told those brand new baby Ukrainian Christians that drums were the devil's instrument. And to this day, they believe that drums are evil and they cannot have drums in church. No drums whatsoever. That is an example of imposing your culture onto someone else as an addition to the gospel. But Paul, remember the context that he's talking about all of this in. So back in chapter 8, right, we're talking about eating. Eating meat sacrificed to idols. Now, bear in mind that they were not sitting at the table going, man, doesn't this idol sacrifice taste good? There was a concern because people would be invited to one another's houses for a meal, and they would be wondering, like, where'd this meat come from? Am I going to sin if I eat this? Is, is this sinful for me to partake of this? So it, it was a question of conscience there. And so Paul, in the beginning of chapter 8, tries to encourage them, like, listen, your conscience is clear. Idols aren't real. You're fine. But if your conscience is bothered by it, don't knowingly eat it. Apart from that, you're good. And so in the context of eating a meal... Think about it like that. One of the nice things about where I'm from is that we eat everything. I mean, we, we just do. Uh, I, I saw a meme on the internet literally this morning of uh, there, there's a meme format where, you know, it's like, is this a thing? And then, you know, whatever it is. And so it's a guy with a butterfly that lands on his hand. And it's like people from Louisiana. And the meme says, is this food? And the next frame is him shoving the butterfly in his mouth. Because that's how people from South Louisiana are. They just eat whatever. If it crawls on the ground, if it flies in the air, if it burrows in the mud, whatever it is, if you can fry it, you're going to eat it. <laughs> Louisiana people, am I wrong? All right. Now, some of you, so in particular, uh, Willie Fields posted something on his Facebook last week, week before, and it was one of those things like the list of things that you've ever done. And it was like gotten arrested and driven over the speed limit, blah, 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 blah. One of them was eat alligator. And Willie said, yes. And, and Paula Almager commented and was like, alligator, yuck. And my immediate response was, have you ever actually eaten alligator? No, and I never will because it's gross. It's like, well... Well, first of all, you're wrong. I know. Thank you, Miss Patty. Miss Pat. See, this is why we're this is why we're buddies. She gets me. But second of all, she has immediately said, "I will not partake of that aspect of that culture." Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. If you if you were a missionary to New Orleans, and someone you encountered someone out in the street, and you struck up a conversation with them. I would say that it is probably a greater than 80% chance that they will invite you to their house to eat, like literally that day. They, like, they will probably say to you, hey, I'm going to go home and cook. Why don't you come over? And you're like, right now? Yeah. 
And I'm going to be honest with you. If you were a missionary in New Orleans and you were invited into their home to eat and they put a big plate of alligator in front of you and you went, ew, you, I mean, it sounds silly, but you've just lost them because food is such an integral part of the culture of New Orleans. And so what we should do when we think about this in this context is we should be willing to say, I'm going to eat gross stuff. I'm going to eat gross stuff. I don't want to, but I will. I lived next to a, a young Korean man when I was going to seminary. He was in the dorm room next to me, and um, Kim really enjoyed waking up at 4.30 in the morning and singing praise songs in Korean at the top of his lungs. And Kim made friends with a young Korean family. There were a lot of Korean students at New Orleans, and so they invited him over for dinner, and he invited me. And they served kimchi. And I don't know if you know what kimchi is, but kimchi is fermented cabbage mixed with camel spit, is what it smells like. And it was not good, but I ate it because my mama raised me right but it was not good, but I still ate it because I wanted to be polite. I wanted to establish relationship. And so Paul is talking about this idea of being all things to all people. So he says, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. So what does that mean? Paul is saying, when I was with the Jews, I abided by the Jewish law. I followed the Mosaic law. I went to the feast. I went to the tabernacle in the temple. I did all of those things so that they would be willing to hear me preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says, when I was with those who are not under the law, AKA the Gentiles, he didn't act like a Jew and say, well, we can't do this on the Sabbath. That was something that Peter kind of got in trouble with. He wouldn't associate with the Gentiles because he was not understanding the call of the gospel. But Paul came and lived as the Gentiles with the Gentiles so that he might be able to preach the gospel. He went into cities and talked about their gods and proclaimed the goodness of the one true God. Paul understood what it meant to be all things to all people. And do you know where Paul got that from? Paul got that from Jesus Christ. See, when we talk about this, we're talking about people who are different than us. We're talking about the other, right? Those other kinds of people, those people who are a different culture, a different color, a different whatever from us. Listen, you don't get much more other than God. Okay? There is no one more other from humanity than God. And Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on human flesh and came to earth as a man. And he ate our food and he dealt with our problems and he 
suffered our sorrows. And so when we say, I don't have to do that, I can just keep being me and impose my culture on other people, what we're actually saying is, I am more deserving of keeping my own identity than Jesus is. Because the truth of the matter is, when we talk about becoming a Christian, the Bible talks about it like this. You have died. The Bible says the old has passed away. The Bible says that you are a new creation. Your identity doesn't mean squat. Because your identity is supposed to be found in Jesus Christ. And so we embrace the way that Jesus approached these things. And so kind of a way that, you know, my previous pastor back in Louisiana talked about it. He says, when you think about becoming all things to all people, think about it kind of in the context of what does it take to sit down and eat a meal with them? What does it take to sit down and eat a meal with them? You might have to sit in an uncomfortable way. Some cultures, they sit on the floor. In Jewish culture, they reclined at the table, which is kind of awkward. Some cultures, they stand when they eat. You might eat things that are not good. You might eat things that are still alive. You might eat things that are any number of things. Hmm? Yeah, that, that's different. But you should be willing to do it because the gospel is worth having to having a chug Pepto for a week. I mean, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it, it, it really is. When we think about it in that context, when we think about it in that context, the gospel is worth me having an upset stomach. The gospel is worth me having a stiff neck or a sore back or whatever else it may be. The gospel is worth feeling awkward and uncomfortable in the midst of a very bizarre interaction with someone. The gospel's worth that. And so Paul, notice in verse 22, he says to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. So cycling back to chapter 8, who did he call the weak? Those who were concerned about eating the meat sacrificed to idols. So he's kind of linking it back and saying, listen, like he said in chapter 8, I would never eat meat again if it meant that I would keep my brother from stumbling. So this is not just an admonition to try to win people to faith in Christ. This is an admonition for us as it relates to other believers as well. Because we should be seeking to win them too. Not in the same way. We can't win them to faith in Christ. They already have faith in Christ. But we can win them in the sense of encouraging them. So some of you have had our family over for dinner. Or some of you prepared meals for us after James was born. And you may have called me and asked me or texted me and asked me and said, Is there anything your family doesn't like? Is there anything your family doesn't eat? And, I, and I, I probably responded to you with something like, don't really worry about it. Fix whatever you're going to fix. We'll be grateful for it. I'll eat it. You know, it'll be fine. Because it really doesn't matter. There are definitely things that I don't like. 
I don't want to eat tomatoes. I don't like the texture of tomatoes. I hate olives in every form, every color. Olives are disgusting. So, you know, somebody here one time made a potato salad, and I was like, oh, that looks so good. And I got a big scoop of it, and I took a bite, and there was a big old hunk of black olive in it, and I was like, And then I gave it to someone else. I'm not telling you that so you can fix my dietary preferences. I'm just sharing with you. I I don't say that to say that I don't have preferences. I do. But my preferences don't matter all that much. And frankly, neither do yours. I love all of you. And if you tell me your preferences, I'll do everything I can to meet them. But your preferences shouldn't matter that much to you. So he says this, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. This is probably the second most misunderstood and abused verse in the entire Bible. Right after God is love. God is love, I would say, is probably the most misused and abused and misrepresented verse in all of scripture. But I would say this comes in a very close second. Because this verse has been used by so many people to justify so much nonsense that it's just absolutely absurd. So there is a, there's a, this thing called contextualization. Contextualization. And the, the idea is to meet people within their context. Okay, to meet people within their context. And so people use this verse as kind of a justification to say we should become all things to all people. So whatever their context is, that is the way that we should encounter them. So, for example, when I was in high school, uh, we were when I when I was in youth group, our one of the local high schools had a very active theater program. And so they came up with this idea that, well, we should try to reach this school with the gospel, but instead of just trying to talk to people about Jesus, we should put on a play. And we should do a play about Jesus, and that'll win people to the gospel. That's contextualization. Trying to shape the message or the method or both to fit into that culture. Now, contextualization is not necessarily bad because the idea of learning the language of a foreign people, that would be contextualization. Understanding their culture, that's contextualization. But there's, there's two specific things that we should not ever be willing to adapt or change to suit context. The message and the method. So back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you don't have to turn there, you can just listen. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's been a while since we were there, Paul talks about the message, the message of the gospel itself, that you were created by God, that you are a sinner, that you are going to face God's wrath but that God made a way by sending his son who lived a perfect sinless life 
and died a sinner's death, taking the punishment for sin that we might have life. And he rose again on the third day, the firstborn among many brothers, that we might have eternal life with God. That is the message of the gospel. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Chapter 1, verse 23, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. One of the things that we see in our culture, and this is not a new phenomenon, because Paul was dealing with, with it with the Corinthians, is the temptation to change the gospel in some way to make it more appealing, right? So maybe we just don't talk about sin. We just only talk about how great you are and how God thinks you're so super-duper spectacular. My wife is, on, is in a couple of mom's groups on Facebook and a while ago, there was a woman who posted that said that she was looking for a church to go to in Bakersfield, but she didn't want to go to one of those churches that talked about sin. And reading the replies to that post broke my heart because people were commenting and telling her, come to my church. We never talk about that. One woman posted about her church. I'm not going to say what church it was. One woman posted about her church that she had been going to her church for like 12 years and she had never heard her pastor say the word sin from the pulpit ever. And they rejoiced in that. That is adjusting the message. And here's the truth. That doesn't win people. It doesn't win people. Do you know what it does? It, well, not even just that. It makes you more liked. If I run around telling people, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, people aren't going to like that very much. But when I run around telling them, you're so spectacular, you're so wonderful, it's, it's people-pleasing. It's, it's, it's trying to gain the approval of men. It's tickling ears. That is changing the message. Maybe you don't want to talk about atonement because some people say that the idea of atonement is spiritual child abuse and God would never punish Jesus for our sins. I'm not sure which Bible they're reading, but people say that. That's changing the message. And we don't do that. Paul specifically tells the Corinthians, I'm going to keep preaching the gospel even though it sounds foolish to the world. Even though it's a stumbling block, even though it's folly. Now remember, Paul specifically said, don't eat meat if it'll cause your brother to stumble. So there are certain things that are not worth causing people to stumble. The gospel is not one of those things. The gospel is worth causing people to stumble. Because here's the reality. If you preach an adjusted gospel, you're preaching a false Christ. And a false Christ cannot save. Fake Jesus saves no one. 
And so there are churches, there are entire denominations that are filled with people who are going to hell because they believe in a false Christ. The other thing that Paul says you cannot change is the method. Chapter 2, verse 15. Sorry, it's not the right reference. Um, I don't know what reference I was going for there. But anyway, um, in Romans chapter 10, it talks about how people cannot believe in the gospel that they've never heard. And how are they going to hear unless someone goes and preaches to them? The gospel requires us to proclaim it. Now, I'm not just talking about me standing up here and talking to you. I'm not talking about Pastor Mitch standing up there and talking to you. But I am saying this. It does require words. You may have heard that old, that old fake quote that's misattributed to St. Francis of Assisi. Preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. First of all, Francis of Assisi never said that. And second of all, that is nonsense. To preach the gospel, it is necessary to use words. There is no amount of interpretive movement I can do that will properly convey that God's wrath is upon you. And no, Amelia, I'm not going to try. Amelia made a face like, oh, really? There is no amount of me washing my next door neighbor's car that will explain to them that they are a sinner in need of redemption. You know what it shows them? It shows them that I love them, that I care about them, but that is not the gospel. That is an incomplete gospel. So the method has to be proclaiming the truth of God's word. It has to be. You have to speak. I'm sorry. You might not like to talk to people. Too bad. You have to speak. One of the things that I've uh, I heard this in a sermon talked about how preaching is, is culturally neutral. Everywhere you go, every culture has some form of someone talking to other people. And it might look different. There's some cultures where the preacher sits down and everybody else stands up. Some cultures where we do this, some cultures where everybody sits on the floor, some places they meet outside, maybe you meet in a house, maybe you meet in a big, huge cathedral. It doesn't matter. The method is the same, proclaiming God's truth from God's word, using words. So again, be willing to adapt on everything, on all of your preferences, but don't go changing God's preferences. Don't do that. Because I've seen Southern Baptist churches that are willing to compromise the truth of the gospel, but heaven forbid you play cards in that fellowship hall. I'm just being honest. Their culture is more important to them than fidelity in proclaiming the truth of God. That's backwards. 100% backwards. Our culture means nothing. The gospel means everything. The other thing I want to talk about very briefly is the Christian and the law. Now, I'm not talking about 
the governmental law of the United States or the state of California or Kern County. I'm talking about the Old Testament Mosaic law. Because notice in chapter 9, Paul has two parenthetical statements. He says that he became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. And then he goes on and he says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. And then in parentheses, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. So what does that mean? We, there's a lot of confusion about how do we as Christians relate to what the Old Testament says? And you'll hear people say things like, well, you know, we, 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 can't, we shouldn't condemn homosexuality. That was the Old Covenant. We, we shouldn't do those things. That's the Old Covenant. And there is a hair of truth in the idea of Old Covenant versus New Covenant. Okay? There's, there's truth in there. Because there are things that are under the old law that we are not bound by. As Paul says, you can wear shirts made out of two different kinds of fabrics. You're allowed to do it. We can eat shellfish now. Praise God. We can eat pork. I get bacon. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Jesus is amazing. So there is this idea in the law that the law is kind of, kind of has these, these three components. There's the civil law, which are the laws that had to do with how Israel was governed. And then there was the ceremonial law, which had to do with how Israel worshiped God. So there was the temple and sacrifices and all of those things. And those things have now passed away because that covenant is no longer. We are a part of Israel. We are Gentiles who have been grafted in, but we are not bound by Israelite civil law under the Mosaic covenant. We are not bound, obviously, by the ceremonial law because we don't worship in the Jewish temple. We don't have a priest make sacrifices on our behalf because Jesus Christ has already been our sacrifice. So, we have to recognize that the law has been perfectly fulfilled. Now, Jesus himself said that the law will not pass away until you see the Son of Man coming in his glory. And so let's talk a little bit about what that means, okay? Because Paul says here, those under the law and those not under the law. So there are those who are still bound by the old covenant and then there are those of us who are in the new covenant. And so what we see, we, the, the question we need to ask is, what is the law for? Why, why did God give the law? And the first reason is to show transgression. Romans chapter 4, Galatians chapter 3 tell us that really clearly, that the law was given so that we would see that we are sinners. Paul in Galatians talks about it like the law is a tutor that brings us to Christ. The law is what shows us that we are sinners. If you grow up in a house and your parents never tell you what the rules are, do you know that you're breaking the rules? No. Now, you might be still breaking the rules, but you don't know that until you have the rules until they are clearly told to you. And so God gives the law 
to show that we are sinners. And there was no way that we, on our own, could fulfill the law. It was impossible. We needed someone else who could perfectly comply. And so that's the second use of the law, to show us our need for a Savior. So it shows us our sin, and it shows us how hopeless we are. And in that hopelessness, we recognize we need a Savior. So the law gave us temple, priests, sacrifices to give us access to God. The law gave us the, the, the tools to say, you are a lawbreaker. God will forgive you, and here's how. But now, in Christ, he is the temple. He is the priest. He is the sacrifice. We now have eternal, unlimited access to God because he is an eternal unlimited sacrifice. And so we now are not bound by those things because we have Jesus Christ who has not only perfectly fulfilled them, but he now stands in their place, right? Because when Christ comes again, we all live under his rule. He is the civil law and he is the ceremonial law. And so that leaves the third component, which is the moral law. Now, the moral law is timeless. It existed before the Mosaic law. So in Romans chapter 1, when Paul talks about how the things of God have been clearly seen in creation, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about the moral law of God. And the first, the first component of the moral law of God is that God is. The second component is that God is worthy of worship and you must worship him. And those are the two components that every human being fails to meet. And there is enough in creation, enough of it was revealed in creation to make us guilty of violating it and hold us to that. It was also revealed in the Mosaic covenant in the giving of the law. But it was, the mo it was most fully revealed in the coming of Jesus Christ. God's moral law was most fully revealed in the coming of Jesus Christ. It's final. And so that is our reference point. When we think about how we relate to the law, we now look to Christ. We don't look to the words that God spoke to and through Moses. We look to Jesus Christ himself. What did Jesus do? What did Jesus tell us to do? And we do those things. Does that make sense? That is the law that we are under. So when he says that we are not under the law, we're not under the Mosaic law, eat all the shellfish your heart desires. But when he says that you're, you're, you're still under God's law, that's what he's talking about. You're under the moral law. You still have an obligation to do what is right because God is still God. And because Christ fulfilled all of it in perfect obedience. And so there's going to be overlap. There's going to be aspects of the moral law that overlap with aspects of the other kinds of law. But the reality here is that that's what we are bound to. And so... 
circling back around to how we understand and apply this. In Galatians chapter 5, my Bible pages would stop sticking together. Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. Actually, let's read 13, because this is very much in keeping with what Paul has been talking about. For you are called to freedom, brothers. You are called to freedom. So you are free from the restrictions of the law. You are called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. So there again, you are free from the confines of the law, but you are still bound by the moral law of God, right? Don't use your freedom as license for just living however you choose. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when Paul talks about the law and the Christian, what does he want you to do? He wants you to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the overflow of the moral law of God. Love your neighbor as yourself. And how do you love your neighbor as yourself? Well, first, you must love Christ. Because as we talked about previously, it is only when you see Christ as worthy that you will truly be able to say that your preferences don't matter. That your desires and your wants don't matter. That even your needs don't matter. Because loving your neighbor as yourself means you will suffer harm if it means they do not. And that doesn't just mean jumping in front of the bullet for them. It means giving them the last piece of pizza. It means giving them your last $20. It means giving to the point that you even would die that they would not. That is loving your neighbor as yourself. That is what Christians are called to do under the law. So when we think about our liberty, we think about our freedom, we think about what our rights are, who cares? There is one call. Honor Christ by loving your neighbor as yourself. The whole law is summed up in that one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would help us to become all things to all people. I pray, Father, that as we seek to abandon our rights, to surrender our preferences, to no longer rest on our own hopes and desires and dreams, I pray, Father, that you would help us to place others before ourselves. That we, Father, would, would rightly understand that we are free. But in our freedom, we surrender our rights to love our neighbor because that is how we love Christ. Be with us as we go from here. In Christ's name, amen.